that's important for people to understand because there's such a myth about homicide and homicide detectives and it's so hollywoodized and and uh you know when you're seeing that every day i mean i felt myself moving and transitioning to a desensitized individual you know and i think that's why i've bonded so well with these guys is you know and i, and I hate that i have to leave them honestly because i feel like i'm leaving friends This project specifically is not about homicide detectives, okay? It's about homicide. It's about how homicide affects us as a society. It's a societal phenomenon. So in order for me to look at that, I have to look at it from a 30,000 foot view, and I have to look at it in three parts. Victims and their families, perpetrators and their families, and then those who are caught literally and figuratively in the middle, and they'll be in the middle of the book, the investigative part. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to not just bridge the divide between the general public and law enforcement, but I'm also, as far as the homicide subject itself, I'm just trying to get, I'm, you know, if it helps prevent a homicide, then you know what? That's awesome. Somebody looks at this book and says, man, this, there's a lot involved in this, um, you know, that hopefully it prevents uh, something in the future. And, and if that's the case, and I'll never know it, but if hopefully if that's the case, uh, then everything was worth it. So it's like, translating for for the general public when I take a photograph. I'm a, I'm a visual mediator between two groups of people who may never ever speak. And so in order for me to do that, I have to hyper-focus on what I'm looking at within the frame. But in order to do that, I also have to take myself out of that moment. So there was many a times where I would start to raise a camera and then I'd be like, nah, this one's for me. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For, in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. President John F. Kennedy gave this commencement speech in June of 1963. In just over six months, the president will take his last breath in Dallas, Texas. The city of Dallas changed as well as the world. Today's guest is different from the other guests we've had on this podcast. He looks at the world through a different lens. He attempts to show others what he sees through the lens of his camera. He's traveled the world with his amazing artistic lens. He showed the world Campesino Cuba, through a lens we have not seen in that country. 
He looked beyond the 60-year embargo in our country's and government's differences and documented pure humanity and struggle and despair and the sheer beauty of mankind. Now he's working on a new project right here in his native state of Texas in my native city of Dallas as he has been working with the Dallas Police Homicide Unit. It's the Assisi Officer Foundation honor to welcome the visual mediator, photojournalist, Richard Sherum. Richard, thank you for coming on. Uh, welcome to the ATL stage. Uh, proud to be here. All right, before we get into the story, um, I want to welcome on two special guest co-hosts, Lieutenant Swires uh, in the Homicide Unit. He commands uh, SIU and Homicide. Is that correct, LT? Yeah, that's correct. Thank you for having us, show. Oh, yeah. And the great detective, Andrea Isom. She's back on the mic. Hello. And I'm here with Sergeant Kent Wolverton, as always. And we have a we have kind of have a voyeur in the in the room. He's uh, from Grand Prairie PD, Detective Height. Uh, Kent and I went on their podcast for Grand Prairie PD uh, last uh, this last week, and we talked about the ATL and talked about wellness and just a variety of topics. So he's going to sit in and watch how low rent we actually are. The DPD way. Yeah, the DPD way. Richard, you ready to get into this? I sure am. I just want to uh, make a notation. This is the first podcast interview that I've done where there are people in the room wearing guns. So. Yeah, everybody's got one here. Some Except have two. Me. Except I can give you one. No, it, okay. okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll just let you sit one on the table just in case. It's all right. All right. Um, we're just going to get into this. We're, you know, you and I talked beforehand and you said this is probably the most in-depth you know, wide ranging of interviews you've ever done. And it's kind of an honor for me to, to do that, but that's how we roll here on this podcast. We, we try to touch on the beginning, the the middle, and then it's not the end for you. You actually, I'm probably going to have to interview you a year from now and you're going to have a lot more to tell. Mm. Well, hopefully, hopefully I'll be here. Yeah, you will. All right. I'm going to talk about, uh, you growing up in Corpus Christi. Well, um, yeah, I grew up in Corpus Christi. I was born in 78, and um, August of 78, and I grew up in a lower middle-class home, I guess you would classify it as. Both my parents were working parents. My father sold insurance door-to-door. Uh, my mother worked at the hospital. She was a medical transcriptionist, so she listened to doctors' recordings all day and typed them out. Um, so she was extremely hardworking. Um, and uh, I had one sister. I was three years older than me, Denise. And, um, yeah, we grew up in Corpus and the environment I grew up in, the neighborhood I grew up in was, like I said, lower middle class. A lot of the homes were built, you know, in the fifties, right after world war two. Um, so they weren't great quality. Um, you know, and I grew up in like a thousand square foot house, which I didn't realize how small it was until I was much older. Yeah. Your siblings. Yeah. So I have a sister, uh, who's three years older, Denise. Okay. Shout out Denise. Yeah. What's the best seafood restaurant in, in Corpus? Well, okay. So if you're from Corpus, you know this. And it, it, what it is is it's not the fancy ones where you go and sit down and, like, you know, there's, like, music playing. No, the best seafood restaurant in Corpus, I don't even know if it's still there, is called Boatnet. And it had the worst drive through uh, like, speaker system you can imagine. I mean, they could have literally put cans with a string and shit, and it probably would have uh, – oh, can I cuss in here? No. Okay. Well, <laughs> you just got the explicit – tag so yeah you're, you're good you're good to go <laughs> um 
but yeah, I mean, it was terrible, but they had the best fried shrimp and, uh, uh, you know, and sides and stuff like that and fried chicken. So it was fantastic. So I see a common theme there. Everything's fried. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you talked about that part of Corpus growing up in there and you were ostracized at some point by the color of your skin. Can you kind of explain that to the listener? Well, so I grew up in an environment where it was mostly Hispanic, um, there was hardly any Afro- African Americans. There were some, um, and there was almost no people that looked like me. And since we're on the radio, um, I'm more light complected. Now, uh, the thing is, is that when you look at me, you don't realize that I'm actually part Hispanic. My grandmother, um, her parents came from Piedras Negras, which is right on the other side of the border. Uh, so my grandmother was full uh, Hispanic. She was four eleven, a uh, beautiful woman, uh, long black hair for the m- most of my childhood. And um, she married a, uh, a, a white man uh, who was much older than her when she was 19 years old. And uh, my father was the second oldest child. Um, and so he was half Hispanic, half white, but he looked full Hispanic. He was very dark. Um, and so my, when my father married my mother, who was from southern Alabama, who was very white, um, my sister, who was three years older than me, their first child, she was born in 75, she popped out looking just like my father, skin tone, and with dark, dark hair. So she looked Hispanic. But when I came out three years later, I was born, uh, you know, white skin with blonde hair and blue eyes. My eyes ended up turning to hazel later on, but for the first, first few years of my life, uh, I had, you know, um, blue eyes and blonde hair, very blonde hair. Um, and so when you see family pictures of us when I was around that age, um, you know, my dad's very dark, my sister's very dark, my mom's white, I look white. And so we look like we're a separated, you know, a family that came from separate, uh, you know, origins. Uh, but in, in fact, my sister and I are, have the same blood. Uh, but growing up, I caught a lot of, uh, well, I guess heat, you would call it, uh, for being light complected in that area. And my sister got off a lot easier. Um, um, so yeah, I had to deal with a lot of racism growing up. If you, I mean, you know, here's the thing is, you know, you hear all these terms like reverse racism and stuff like that. And there's really no such thing as reverse racism. There's just racism. I don't, I don't care where it comes from or w- which direction it's headed. Um, when anybody whatsoever is judged, uh, preemptively on the color of their skin or, uh, their socioeconomic status by the way that they're dressed, I have a problem with that. Uh, and so, Growing up in an environment like that, where I was judged constantly based on the color of my skin, I couldn't go to certain friends' houses to play, even though we were allowed to play in the street. I was not allowed to go to their house because, um, you know, I was light-complected. Everybody called me Weddle um, over there. And so I dealt with a lot of that. I dealt with it from authority figures, uh, from teachers, from coaches. Coaches wouldn't play me because I was the only white kid on the team. Um, I dealt with a lot of stuff in school. I had to learn how to fight very early on, um, in elementary, middle school, especially going into high school. Um, and then I also dealt with it from the police, to be honest with you, because I grew up in a bad, bad neighborhood, a bad environment. There was a lot of gangs, um, a lot of taggings everywhere, shootings. And because I grew up in that environment, which that area was called South Park over there in Corpus, um, similar to Houston's South Park, I guess. Um, that when a police officer saw me walking around or whatever, he thought that I was there for nefarious reasons. He didn't think that I belonged there. And sometimes when they found out that I was from there, they would treat me worse. 
because I was from that environment. So um, I grew up with a suspicion uh, against police officers, and I grew up um, not necessarily upset with those that judged me based on the color of my skin, but I really felt sorry for them. I really felt sorry for people uh, because I knew that it was a situation of they just did not they didn't know me, and they didn't necessarily want to take the time to know me like my friend's parents. So you had a level of mistrust with the police? Oh, yeah. Based on the interactions? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, police would roll through our neighborhood uh, quite often and, and just, you know, stop us for no reason, make us get on the ground, search our pockets, you know, stuff like that, and then say, get out of here. And then, you know, we'd get back up and play football on the street. So that stuff kind of happened a lot. Uh, and we can get into that more uh, later on if you want. Uh, where I had an actual run-in with the police officers when I was uh, 16 years old, that really kind of changed, you know, um, uh, my viewpoint uh, for police officers for for quite a long time, um, which is part of the reason why I wanted to do this homicide project. So we can get mm-hmm. it all into that later on. But going back to Corpus, growing up, you know, I, um, you know, it taught me a lot about people judging others based on the color of their skin. And so I decided at that point, you know, I could go in a situation like that, an individual can go one of two ways, right? They can go to where they hate all individuals, you know, because they, because they're judgmental or they can go the other direction in that they want to try to express themselves to try to correct that problem. And so for me, I chose to go that other direction where I grew up, you know, always wanting to express myself in order to try to, no pun intended, bridge the divide uh, like this podcast. I'm glad so. you worked that in there. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's why I wanted. I want to get on a variety of people and topics and, you know, I, I want to get other sides of my upbringing, other sides of my uh, beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've young, growing up in Dallas, I grew up, grew up in the Oak Cliff area and there was a time when we had some money, then no money, and I've seen a lot of uh, similar things. And like kindergarten to third grade, I was the only, I was the only white kid in class there in Oak Cliff, and it, but it wasn't a big deal to me then because that's just I didn't know any better, you know. And then the police did, or I didn't start having interactions with the Dallas police until I was probably sixth grade, you know. But um, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to get into more of that story uh, later on mm-hmm. about your interactions because I want to hear. I want to hear, you know, I want to hear another side. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to hear a bunch of diehard police supporters. And, and, and I want to hear, I want to have a conversation about all sides. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, and I want to say, I've been saying this around the office too. I say office headquarters. It's been my office for almost a year, but it's your office. Yeah. But, um, it's funny because I'll get in debates with, you know, some of the detectives about certain things, um, because I come from a different environment, uh, from the very beginning, um, but I'm able to empathize with both, uh, sides. And, uh, I think it's also been good for some of the detectives to have a little bit of a different, uh, injection into their, uh, worldview a little bit, uh, from someone who's not in their bubble all the time. So, um, it's been mutually beneficial. I'll tell you that. I want to get into, uh, how you got into history. Why did you get such a love of, of history and, you know, just, is it us history, world history, all, all the above, Tell us about that. Well, you know, I think that came from my mother. My mother was always uh, attracted to history. We didn't have a lot of money growing up, obviously, from what I said previously. But what my mom would do is she would work her tail off, and then she would save up all her money every year. Um, 
And then we would take one big family trip. And so every summer we would get in the van and we'd drive somewhere and it was always historical based, you know, so we'd go somewhere that had some sort of historical location and learn about it or whatever. One of my favorite locations that I used to love going to, because I grew up in Corpus, so uh, her best friend lived in San Antonio. Um, we I called her Aunt Doris, even though she technically wasn't my aunt. But we used to go up to San Antonio all the time and stay with them, and I loved going to the Alamo, and I would force them to take me to the Alamo every time, and they would be like, oh, here we go. Ricky wants to go to the Alamo again, and I would love I would love to go, and, and one of my favorite things that I used to love to do when I went to the Alamo um, is run my fingers along the walls of the Alamo because what I like to do is I like to, to pretend and to understand that those elements uh, were constant in time. And that's when I really became obsessed with time as an understanding history. And, and, uh, by touching these things, I became connected to that time and I became connected to those people that were there during that event. And so in a way I was able to kind of share something with them instead of just being a quote unquote tourist, I was actually part of it. And so, um, you know, I used to stick my fingers in the holes and stuff like that, you know, and, um, where I knew most people weren't doing stuff like that, you know. And um, so I, I've, I've always been obsessed with time and history and, you know, and... Um, well, connectivity. Connectivity, that, yeah, 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 because it's it's all connected to me and, you know, even even what's coming. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge history. If anybody that listens to this knows that I love history. And um, I can't tell you how many times I've been to the Alamo. I, I went last year for, a, we were out there for a conference and... I made yet another trip to it, and I love all the, uh, especially Texas history, because I grew up here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was obsessed sorry, with Texas history, and we used to play the Alamo in my backyard and shoot each other with BB guns and stuff like that. We had set up boxes and forts and stuff like that. You know, back when you were a kid and you could do crazy shit. And and back when you didn't have a lot of money, you had to Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We'd have chinaberry fights. I don't know if they have those up here, but they had these big chinaberry trees, and we'd have chinaberry fights when we'd our BB guns had taken away, and... Um, stuff like that. And yeah, I just, I've always loved history and the sense of understanding of time and, and death and all these things. Well, it's, it's all around us and it hits us all. Yeah. You know, I, I, I heard a great quote from uh, one of my favorite shows says, you know, it's your life. You don't know how it ends, but you know, it's not good. It move forward and yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, even as a kid, I was obsessed with this concept of death and time. And, um, I used to have these weird, like imaginations of like you know what it would be like like I, would, I would, almost like I would see my room from a from a from a bird's eye view you know like um, you know what it would be like this is gonna sound really morbid so uh, but like you know I, I'd imagine myself like dying in my sleep as a kid and like what would happen when my mom walked in in the morning to wake me up to go to school how would she react and I would visualize all these things and and so like and I did it as almost like an appreciation for what she would have to go through. You know what I mean? It was almost like a practice of empathy, but as a small child, I would imagine these things. And even when I was a kid, like I was very conscious when I'd be outside playing with my friends, I was very conscious of the fact that this would not last, you know, and I would do silly things like blink my eyes and try to, you know, when it's really bright outside and you look at something and you blink your eyes, it'll create an image in your eyes, kind of like on the other side of your eyelids for a microsecond. And I would do those things. You know, and, and I would try to stop time as a child, not understanding what I was really trying to do until I got older. So you had a very artistic outlook already and in and a, and a below the surface 
look at everything it sounds like growing up and then that's kind of you built on that obviously yeah i mean i hesitate to word use the word artistic i i, I even hate the word artist because okay. um to me that's a um that's a word of separation that okay. means that i'm able to do something that other people can't do and i and i you know i have a strong feelings about that i think that everybody has those abilities it's just something has to wake that up inside of you everybody has the ability to, to create and be expressive and you know what i do for a living now doing documentary work uh is not special you know anybody i feel could do this um it just really you know takes uh, effort and it takes an understanding uh, and empathetic control of your emotions um so uh yeah i, I would say uh, you, you know, an artistic viewpoint as a small child, I would just say that I was conscious of time. And I think if an individual is able to be conscious of the time that they're in, it automatically makes them want to preserve it. It automatically makes them want to be empathetic towards others because they understand that what they're living in is finite. It's not infinite. Yeah, it is a very finite life. Yeah, but it sounds like you had more of a, you were in tune with more of an interest in... I mean, nowadays people can't stop looking at their phone to enjoy what's in front of them, and I can't imagine if I how I would have been if I had an iPhone when I was. Oh, that thank age. God! Yeah. we didn't have that when we were yeah. kids. I mean, seriously. I mean, I went outside all day and played all day and enjoyed nature. You, oh you, my you God! Know. Yeah, I mean, and, and and even when video games and stuff like that came out, I remember when an Atari came out and shit. We were too poor for that, but my uncle had one. Did your parents used to tell you either inside or outside, but not in and out? Correct. That's yeah. what I, I was trying to explain that to my kids yesterday, yeah. and, and it was so foreign to them yeah. because they go in and out all day long, or yeah. they just don't do anything. But it yeah, because we didn't have central air, so we had a couple of window units, uh, and uh, like for the whole house, we had my parents had one in their in their room in their bedroom, and we had one in the living room, and uh, yeah, it was in or out. Like, don't leave the door open. You know, that's money pouring out the window. That's what my dad would say. Come back when the. And the lights come on outside. Yeah. Stay. <laughs> Even then, they'd have to come yeah. find me. Yeah. Let's talk about your first photography class. What, mm. How did that impact you? So uh, I really only took one photography class. Um, so when I finally made it to community college, uh, I went to community college because um, I actually didn't graduate from high school. I dropped out in 11th grade. And uh, so I never got my high school graduation. Uh, it was funny because... I used to go to high school and I used to go to class, but I would just go and take the tests and I would ace all the tests, but I would never do the homework. And I would always go to the beach and go surfing and go bodyboarding and hang out with my friends and stuff. And so, um, the teachers were really frustrated with me. And so I finally just dropped out. Um, and so I never got a high school graduation. Um, I got my education in other ways and read a lot. Um, and so, Anyways, fast forward, I went to community college and, uh, and I went there at the uh, direction of my ex-girlfriend at the time, uh, Bonnie Bremers. I want to give her a shout out, uh, because had it not been for her, I may not have even become a photographer, like a professional photographer. She, um, knew how obsessed I was with history and she was taking history courses. She was a history major, a history minor, I think at the time at SMU and, I was broke, living on my own at the time, and she uh, um, would bring me food from the cafeteria from SMU. And she would also, uh, she also noticed that when she came to my apartment to come visit me, 
I would just pour through her history books and I would just read them, you know, and I loved them. And she would take me to these history talks that would happen at the college that, that she got to go to for free. And so I became obsessed with this. So she, uh, one day, I, I have to tell this story before I talk about the photography class because it's relevant. But one day she showed up at my apartment. I wasn't doing anything at the time. I was unemployed. And uh, uh, she goes, uh, I got you something for your birthday. This was in August, you know. And I said, okay, what? And she shows me this piece of paper. And as a, on the bottom of the piece of paper is a really terribly uh, foraged, forged uh, signature of mine. You know, that she tried to forge my signature on a piece of paper. And I was like, what the hell is this? She had applied for community college for me to go to school. She's like, I want you to go to college. She goes, you don't, you deserve to go and get a higher education and you should take some history courses. She got me all excited about it. She goes, once you get that done, then you can transfer to a university and get your history degree and become a history professor. And I was like, awesome. So photography 101 black and white film class was one of the electives that I chose that first year. Um, and so that's how my journey really began because uh, I was in the dark room working all the time. I started skipping my college classes to spend more time in the dark room. And uh, I became obsessed with just this idea of photography. And uh, I, I started pouring over documentary photography books when I came across them. Magnum Photos was a big influence of mine. Uh, it was a photo agency out of New York. And I just became obsessed with these photographers. So uh, the guy who ran the photography department at Northlake, that's, that's the college I went to in Irving, uh, he finally came to me because he noticed that I was helping other students process film and print photos in the darkroom. And he goes, you know, you've, you've gotten pretty good at doing this. He goes, do you want to help me teach orientation classes on showing stu new students how to process their film and how to print photos? You can do like the, the, the orientation and run the darkroom. The college will pay you. And I was like, you know what, do I get a key to the darkroom? And he said, yes. And I said, then I'll do it. So he gave me a key to the dark room. They paid me like seven fifty an hour or some bullshit. And I basically spent all day there in between my classes teaching other students how to process film and print photos. But then when they would go home at night and all the classes were over, I would spend all night in the dark room because I had a key and I got friendly with the uh, campus police and they got to know me. And I would spend from 10 o'clock at night until six in the morning sometimes printing my own photos, setting up different trays, and stuff like that. And I would spend the night in the dark room. And, um, and so I would just do that over and over and over again until I perfected, uh, you know, the art of printing. I perfected, but I got pretty good at it and processing film and experimenting with film and stuff like that. So basically nobody, I mean, nobody taught you, you self-taught. It sounds like that you, the other parts of school didn't interest you as much. You, what you, what did interest you, you took it upon yourself to just dive into and become great at it well so i was interested in the history and the political science courses mm -hmm. um you know i i, I definitely uh, absorbed all that uh, because i knew that was relevant but with photography it allowed me to actually be a history professor you, you understand like i understood with, by, by doing documentary work i could be a history professor at the same time of being a photographer and uh, because I knew that I, if I recorded contemporary history, um, I was documenting it and recording it for posterity. Uh, I knew that because that's that obsession with time. And um, so, so, yeah, I mean, 
I just became obsessed with it. And, um, I, I knew right away that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to not be a history professor and, you know, yell at a bunch of bratty kids all day. I wanted to go out there and document contemporary history. Um, and so that's what I did. And I started getting work immediately. I got, that's when the Meadows, uh, the Meadows commission happened. And, um, and yeah. So can you explain to the listener what documentary history is, what that entails? Documentary photography. Yeah, so, you know, documentary photography is more in line with something that's generally seen as a long-term project on something that is of interest or of public interest, okay? Um, Photojournalism is also kind of the catch-all phrase that's being used uh, for all of those things, but a photojournalist also can mean someone who shoots daily assignments for newspapers, so they're considered photojournalists. Um, so that means that if you work for the Dallas Morning News, for instance, you may have to go photograph two politicians shaking hands or something else happening, a, a ribbon cutting of some facility or something like that. So you're just basically going out and doing these little tiny miniature assignments, uh, miniature projects, if you will, that are maybe last a day. And then, you know, so that's, those are photojournalists. I consider myself a documentary photographer because the things that I take on are usually long-term in nature. It takes a long time to really kind of get an understanding of what it is. And it's not something that I can shoot in a day uh, or two. Um, So that's how I designate it. So that's why I designate myself as a documentary photographer instead of a photojournalist. What style do you use? Do you have a particular style? Um, well, I mean, I would, I would just call it old-fashioned documentary work. Um, you know, I embed myself as deeply as I can in a situation. Um, usually I try to figure out where that line is, and then I cross it a little bit. Lieutenant can tell you about that. And uh, and then, you know, I, I try to go as deep as as absolutely deep as I can, because in most people, whenever you're documenting them, they automatically have this, this force field around them, you know, and that's very natural. You know, we, we you notice that even when you're standing in line at the grocery store, you, you, you have a natural space between you and other people. And, uh, especially when you start asking personal questions and, and you spend, start spending a lot of time with people, you know, that, that those walls start to break down and, and it becomes a mutual vulnerability, you know. Um, so whenever you photograph someone and you spend a lot of time with them, they have to, in order to do it well, they have to understand that you're also vulnerable to them, you know. And so I've opened up a lot to some of these detectives about my personal life and who I am and stuff like that. Richard, you were talking about, uh, you know, having to break down that wall. How long do you think it took till the detectives were used to you being around? Did it take long? Did it take months? I mean, because it's it's a pretty insular group, even within the department, that they don't they don't necessarily let everybody into that inner circle. Well, I will say that I well, I would say ninety nine percent of the people in homicide, which is pretty good, um, took an immediate, almost immediate acceptance of me. Uh, in fact, it was so quick. And so accepting that I thought that something was wrong because I, you know, I've photographed a lot of groups that are insular and, um, you know, that don't really let outsiders in. And so I thought that it was going to be really, really difficult once I got to homicide, once I finally got in, um, I thought it was gonna be really difficult to kind of get into them, uh, and for them to accept me photographing them uh and to not see me as the media you know that's that's the misconception that i get a lot is people think that i'm 
the media, but I'm actually have nothing to do with the media. You know, I'm, I'm an author. I do books. I put out long-term projects. But you're still an outsider into their correct their world. Correct. But I mean, I can tell you. I mean, with Criddle's group, they were the first ones that I spoke with. I actually spoke to them in the conference room um, right when I got there, and they all. You know, I, I explained to them right off the bat what I was wanting to do. I didn't want to just photograph them at work. I also wanted to go home with some of them. And I wanted to photograph them as you know as closely as possible. Even the the mundane stuff that they had to do in between uh, murder cases, you know, like having to go to the courthouse and get warrants signed and stuff like that. Uh, go to the property room, you know, um, all the in between stuff that people don't think about and that they they don't really know about. So they were all game. And uh, and then after about the first week, some of the other detectives were like, "Who is this guy? You know, who is this guy? And you know, who 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 is this guy walking around?" And I took. I took the time to go to every single one of them individually and and um, tell them who I was and what I was there for and what I wanted to do and that I wanted to include them. I didn't want to exclude anybody. In a way, that was your way of reaching out and being vulnerable to them, touching the yeah. wall of the Alamo and connecting with them. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. This this question is for the uh, detective Isoman, a lieutenant. Your first interaction with Richard. I mean, what did y'all think whenever? You know, you first met him, and then you realized what his mission was. Be honest. <laughs> I mean, so you called me, I think. You called me when you, uh, you first started it and kind of told me a little bit. And so, I mean, I was intrigued but also hesitant because – and it's mostly the media thing, which is not anything against the media. It's just – like Lieutenant said, we kind of have almost a subculture within the police culture because not a lot of people um, do homicide investigations full time, have this level of working. Like, I mean, we spend more time with each other than some people do their families. I mean, 10 hours straight overnight, five, six days a week. I mean, the amount of time we're together or in the office or the late hours, we just become very close because we have to be. And we have to be able to like you know, just work together and cuss each other out sometimes or whatever we got to do. Um, and so we're always just kind of wary of people. I think the biggest thing was like, are you going to be writing down what we're saying? Because we're all going to get in trouble or fired or something. Because when I mean, we have dark humor and all the things we do. So, um, but I personally was really intrigued by it just because of like the posterity, like what you were saying. I also love history the greatest generation era, especially. And when I first saw a lot of your work, that's what came to mind is especially the speed of Americana, because it does, even though it's current today, the way you, you photograph people in middle America, which is where I'm from, has that callback to the forties and the fifties when things were simpler. You don't see lots of cell phones in their hands when you're taking photographs. Mm -hmm. And so it could be anytime. I mean, plus it's black and white, so it really can and a lot of people are wearing, you know, overalls or they're farmers and um, being from Missouri and living in Nebraska for a while. I just always love that part of the country. So I, I just think it's a cool concept, like you said, too, about the history. No one's photographed a group in how long? Like a detective group? So the last time that a documentary photographer spent some time with a police unit, uh, and he didn't just do homicide, he did uh, uh, you know, the police department uh, was James Natway when he did his crime and punishment essay in 1992. So it's been a long time. And before that, like the 70s or the yeah, 50s? Yeah, so before that, it was yeah. 1980, Lee Friedlander. Um, and then before that, um, Gordon Parks in 1958. So there hasn't been a lot of documentation of police units, and I have not found any 
one that it's been for this extended period of time for a homicide unit specifically. So this, in a way, it's groundbreaking and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's it's its own document. It's it stands in, in its own league. So. And I just think it's really neat because especially we spend so much of our lives, like the last seven years of my life has been, what have you done? Uh, travel, do this, but mostly homicide. And so getting to see like a little bit of it, you know, through your eyes, I think is really interesting. And I'm excited to be a part of that for history purposes. So, so I, I got brought in on it a little earlier because I was part of the approval process, which Richard will tell you took, what, 16 months? 16 months. 16 months to get the approval for this to be done. So it had to go all the way through Garcia, and I believe it may have also gone over to City Hall to John Fortune himself. And it got rejected twice. Um, so I hadn't told Richard this part of it before, but me being having done what I've done on the department, I spent a few years in fusion, so I'm big on researching things. So once I saw the name, I went in and did some researching, looked at some of his photographs, and kind of had an idea of what he was already doing. And the Cuba project is one of them I looked at, and you could see the emotion on the faces of the people in Cuba. You could see the weathering from the faces for being out in the sun all the time, and you could kind of see what he was able to capture. So I was I was on board with it pretty early on. And then when he started coming out with us after he'd been there for uh, maybe a week, two weeks, you kind of forget he's there because you're out there doing the job. You're immersed in everything. He's not getting in the way. He's kind of standing back and just taking the photographs and capturing as we work. Well, part of that is probably just a level of trust you you gain from being around him. Yes, and he. I mean, I haven't. I don't know him as well as y'all do. I mean, I just uh, met him recently, but he's a likable guy. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. I'm going to edit that out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so he he mentioned the the Cuba project. Mm-hmm. Can you get into that and tell the listener what that is and uh, just how that got going? And we're going to get back to the uh, to the homicide, mm-hmm. but I want to get into Cuba uh, first. So um, with Cuba, really with all my work, but, you know, Cuba is a good example of it. Um, all my work is based kind of going back to that original growing up in Corpus on this this understanding of empathy. It's always trying to bridge some sort of divide. You know, with homicide, it's the general public and law enforcement. With Cuba, it was with Cubans and with Americans. Uh, I, f- I, f- I consider myself to be a fiercely patriotic person. I love my country, uh, and so therefore I critique it. And I think that what we did uh, or what we've done uh, against the Cuban people, not so much the Cuban government, but the Cuban people since 1958, has been an atrocity. And I grew up in Corpus, uh, as I mentioned. And Corpus has a giant U.S. naval base, okay? So there's a lot of uh, Navy personnel uh, around the city, people that work at the base. So I grew up hearing, when I when I learned about the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, that happened in 1963, uh, when I was a, a child growing up in school, one of the things that got repeated a lot in various classrooms was that Corpus Christi was on the list of targets um, for during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So one of the missiles in Cuba was pointed, uh, one of the nuclear missiles uh, from Russia was pointed at Corpus Christi because it would have been a good launch spot, if you will, uh, if we had... Uh, waged war against uh, Cuba. You know, we would have had ships there uh, that would have went uh, in that direction. So uh, Corpus Christi was one of the targets for elimination for that, if that would have happened. And back then, you know, it would have been very difficult to stop an ICBM missile uh, from, you know, Cuba going to Corpus uh, in that amount of time. So had it popped off, uh, Corpus probably would have been wiped off the map, which meant my family would have been wiped off the map. I grew up with a big extended family. My, My father had um, five brother. I'm sorry, f- uh, five sisters and four brothers. Uh, so I grew up with a giant family, and um, so I would have never been born. So this, these are the thoughts that went into my head as a kid. 
you know, is that these people hate us. Uh, they're still there, Castro and all this. And so I grew up kind of in this environment where, just like most Americans, where A, I didn't know anything about Cubans as people, and B, uh, they hate us from what we do know about them. So when I got older and I became a photographer and I had already been shooting for many years, uh, I was, wanted to take on my first really big book project. Everything before that was just practice, if you will. I was doing projects, but it was mainly, you know, um, few months at a time or something like that. I wanted to actually do something where I would spend years doing it. So I thought about it and I thought, what can I do that is a statement for my own countrymen and countrywomen? Um, but, you know, what, what's a giant divide that needs to be bridged? And I thought about it and I thought, man, I don't know anything about Cuba. I don't know anything about these people. All I know about them is from the Cuban Revolution and what's happened uh, afterwards and Bay of Pigs, Bay and, of Pigs crush, yeah. and stuff like that. And so, who are these people? You know, at this point, I had already traveled quite a bit all over the world, and I noticed that a lot of the things that were taught are not necessarily one hundred percent true. And so, obviously, we're blind to some things as people, as a people. So, I wanted to go to Cuba. I had no idea what I was going to do when I went out there. I just wanted to go out there and meet them. So, I went out there in January of twenty sixteen. Was the first time I went. And I went to the western part of the island, and I immediately met with, I stayed with a farmer and stayed with him, and and I was struck by just the hospitality and the warmness of these people. Uh, there's not cell phones everywhere. Everybody talks to one another. Uh, they're more nature-oriented, and um, I, I was also amazed at, you know, the, the fact that they didn't care about politics. They didn't care about any of that. They wanted to know more about me as an individual, about my family. They wanted to tell me about themselves and their family. They were open. They were so open to me. Someone coming from a foreign, hostile land with a camera, uh, and they accepted me immediately. Uh, and so, and where it really struck me is when I left that first farmer's house and I went to an entirely different village, and they opened up to me just the same way and I thought okay that that can't be an anomaly right so then I spent some time there and photographed came back to the states uh, was strip searched on the way back in uh, in Florida um, uh, by the US uh, authorities and then I went back to Cuba this time I went to the eastern part of the island over there in the uh, by the Sierra Meister mountains on the eastern side and I noticed that every village I went to over there was the exact same way, and then I then I understood this is a this is a people, this is how they are as a people. It's not just hyper regional, and so that's when I really decided to focus on the Campesino people who make up eighty five percent of the population out there. So they're the vast majority of the people out there, um, and I you know uh, I decided to spend more quality time there, and uh, that's what I did. Can you describe some of these villages uh, for the listeners of, of uh, the conditions, the living conditions? And, and you said you were welcomed right in, and they were very open with you, uh, especially being an outsider because you, you know, you're from America. From a hostile land. From a hostile land. You're there with a camera, and you actually just kind of immersed yourself in with these, these communities. Can Correct. you describe what some of these villages and the living conditions were like? Um, well... To the layman, you know, to someone over here, it would it would seem that the conditions were terrible, right? Because of what we've been accustomed to. But once you're there and you're walking down the road and you see the sunlight coming through the trees and there's a natural mist in the air because it's so humid and 
you know, you see everybody walking down the road, and you, then a man comes by on horseback, and you see kids running in the street on their way to school, then it becomes more of a situation where you understand what real paradise is and what real happiness is. Because one of the things that I noticed wherever I went in Cuba, especially the campesino people, the people that live rurally, is how happy they are, okay? And not only are they happy, but they don't want, they, they're aware of what we have and who we are and the things that we, how much richer we are as a country. But, uh, you know, it was extremely difficult to find someone there who did not want to be there. And I know that that's not the narrative. You know, most of the people that you see coming upon the shores in Miami and all these stuff like that, people who are escaping Cuba, are from the cities. Now, the cities are a different con- concept. So the quality of life, quality of living, I would say, in the cities was terrible. Uh, but so is it here sometimes. Uh, but in, in the countryside over there, I mean, it was paradise. Even though the, the houses were simple, they were made, uh, you know, of uh, balsa wood on the, the exterior, thatch roof, uh, dirt floors. Uh, for the most part, um, but the houses were extremely clean. You'd go inside the house; all the furniture was handmade. And it really, what it does is it reminds you, if you know anything about history and about our own history, it, it's like going back to the United States when we were more of a pastoral country, when we were more rural-based uh, uh, in this country before everything was connected. When Eisenhower built the highway system, so um, that's what it reminded me of, and. I felt extremely comfortable in those situations. Um, I never got sick there. Uh, the water was always super clean. Um, so, it, you know, when you say living conditions, it's assumed that, oh, it must have been terrible. These people were living in poverty. Man, these were the happiest people on earth. And if I could raise a family there, I would. I'll tell you that. What are some of the uh, misconceptions about, you, you mentioned some, but can you go a little further with misconceptions that we have with that country? Well, that, that, that the people hate us, number one, that's absolutely false, uh, no matter where I went, whether it was in the cities or in the uh, countryside. Number two, that it's dangerous. You know, I got warned by people who had never been to Cuba before I went, hey, watch out when you go to Cuba. They don't like you there. They might, you know, kidnap you and hold you for ransom or whatever. Um, absolutely false. Absolutely false. I mean, I couldn't state that, you know, more strongly. I've been all over this world, right? I've photographed in five different continents. Okay. I've been a lot, been been a lot of places. Cuba is by far the most, the warmest, uh, most hospitable place I've ever, ever been to. I've never felt safer than I did in Cuba. Uh, the second place would be Kyoto, Japan, when I went to Japan and photographed there. But in Cuba it was by far uh, the safest place that I've ever felt. I felt completely comfortable there. If you were hungry, somebody would give you food. If you were thirsty, somebody would give you water. If you needed somewhere to stay, you could literally walk up almost to any house in any village over there on the eastern side of Cuba and the western side and uh, and ask if there was a you know somewhere you could stay. And they would put you up in their bedroom if they had to and sleep on the floor if they had to. Um, so that's the kind of environment we're talking about. So that's a huge misconception. The other misconception is that they're starving. So in Cuba, in the cities, yes, you know, when people live in tenements and they live in buildings, these old concrete buildings, they're having to stand out line, in lines for food because they don't have a food source. Um, they have monthly rations that they have to go and get their rice or whatever. Um, but when you're in the countryside, which is what I said, 85% of the country is actually countryside. Those people are not deprived. They're out there, you know, 
you know, I, the only fat people I saw in Cuba were in the countryside. Okay. Hell, so we had, we have poverty here and deprived people here standing abso- in lines for food. Absolutely. And you know, in the, when you're in the countryside, you know, you, you know, when I was in the Sierra Maestra, they mostly grow tobacco. I mean, I'm sorry, tobacco, a coffee up there. And so if you're a t- coffee farmer and you grow a bunch of coffee, you take some of the coffee that, you know, you're allotted or whatever off of your land and you would go trade it for rice. You'd go trade it for fish. You'd go trade it for whatever, you know, that this other farmer has. And so they were well-fed, well-supplied, well-stocked. How long did you stay there? I was off and on there for four years. Man, that's that's a deep dive. It is a deep dive because here's the other thing is that not just Cuba, but like these other projects that I'm doing, even with Homicide and, and with, you know, Spina Americana, it's an injustice whenever you go and photograph a subject. When you, when you go and try to document a subject, it's an injustice to them to just parachute in and get the hell out. It's taken out, a lot can be taken out of context. A lot can be and, taken out of yeah. context, and it's dishonest. And it's not necessarily the fault of a photographer. Sometimes they have to do that. They don't have a choice because they don't have the funds or, you know, they don't have the, the freedom or the ability uh, to really deep dive on something. You know, a uh, lieutenant asked me about a project I did a couple of years ago where I went to Vegas and I photographed the people that are living underground in Vegas. There's close to 2,000 people that live in the tunnels under the Strip. A lot of people don't know about them. A lot of people in Vegas don't know about them. And so I went and spent eight days there. I was originally hired to do an editorial assignment by uh, Deseret Magazine um, out of Utah. And they hired me to go and shoot. And they only said they would only pay me for two to three days. Um, I went for eight days. And I didn't even care if they didn't pay me after that. And they didn't. They didn't pay me more than two to three days. So the, I didn't actually make any money on the trip. You know, I didn't make a profit. In fact, I lost money. Um, but the fact was, is that not a lot of people have seen what that looks like down there because it's, it's extremely dangerous down there. They don't allow people with cameras normally. It took me a couple of days to get ingratiated, you know, get it situated with them for them to accept me, uh, and not kill me, uh, because I have a camera and a camera bag. I mean, that's easy money for them. I almost got stabbed on the first day, uh, but I didn't run away. And I stuck with them, and then I photographed them for eight days. And as far as I know, other than a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of organizations that take cameras down there, video cameras, um, there hasn't been, you know, a, a photography documentation of these people for that long. So, but to me, that to me that was important. You know, that was important work that needed to be done, needed to be seen. To so, document. To document. History. And with Cuba, you know, it's that bridging that divide. You know. Uh, you know, I knew that most Americans didn't know anything about Cubans. So I wanted to go out there as an American. Okay. Everybody thinks it's a book about Cubans, that it's a Cuban book. It's a book, you know, it's a book for Cubans. No, it's an American book by an American photographer for Americans. Because I want Americans to see that side of Cuba that they're not taught. Can you talk about some emotional uh, moments you had there? Some, some I, I, I've read a little bit about you. I uh, cyber stalked you a little bit, but can you talk about some parts of that project that really hit home with you emotionally and a spiritual level? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, being accepted like that just wholeheartedly from a, from a group of people who don't have a lot is, uh, very touching. And there was lots of moments where I'd be in the living room of, of this family and they would offer me some food or they'd offer me a bed to sleep and stuff like that. And like I said, they would displace themselves in order to convenience me. 
And there were times that I would just, you know, it was like uh, the only thing that I can think of is, you know, the expression that my cup runneth over. You know, that's kind of what I felt like. And I, and I couldn't quantify that any other way for you now. And it got to the point where there was some times where I didn't want to photograph that, you know. Because when you photograph, you have to take yourself almost out of that situation for a brief second so that you can focus on putting everything in order within a frame so that it makes sense to others, okay? So it's like translating for, for the general public when I take a photograph. I'm a, vis- I'm a visual mediator between two groups of people who may never, ever speak. And so in order for me to do that, I have to f- hyper-focus on what I'm looking at within the frame. But in order to do that, I also have to take myself out of that moment. So there was many a times where I would start to raise a camera and then I'd be like, nah, this one's for me. I'm, I'm going to keep this. It, it would break your connectivity. It would break my connectivity. And if it was a connection that I had between me and the subjects, then I would let that kind of run its course sometimes, knowing that later on I could catch up. So you wrap it up. And can you talk about finishing that project, what that meant to you, and, and how that looked? And, 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 and I want you to talk about the book. Um, so finishing up was, you know, it was very, it, you know, it's one of those things I get asked all the time. How do you know when you're done? I just knew I was done. I had tons of material. It was, it was a sad day when I was leaving. Um, I became really good friends with my, the guy who drove me all over the place. He was my fixer. He got me into a bunch of places. Um, super great guy. Um, and, uh, Onley, if he ever gets to hear this, his name's Onley. And, um, Anyway, so it was really sad leaving him. It was like leaving a best friend. You know, I had spent a lot of time with him in the car, driving from village to village and in the mountains. And he was by my side when I got in trouble with the Cuban authorities. Um, and he didn't leave my side. And so uh, he was one of the ones that I thanked in the back of the book for that. Um, so it was it was emotional, you know, not knowing at the time how this was all going to be culminated into a book, if it was going to be done well. You know, you never know if it's ever going to publish or if it's going to die on your hard drive. You have no idea. So, um, so that was that was interesting to me, and and um, it was heartfelt. And I made a bunch of book dummies, if you will, like fake books before the book was ready to be published, just for those families because I knew I would probably never get to see them again. I feel like there's a really good story about how you got in trouble with the Cuban authorities. Are you uh, are you free to tell that one? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, like I said, the Cuban people, not the Cuban government. So the Cuban government's obviously very paranoid about Americans. Uh, they want to know why we're there when we're there, if, especially if you are there for an extended period of time like I was. Um, so every time that I would go into Cuba, you know, when I'd get to uh, border control or whatever, you know, customs, their questions would be a little tougher every time I went. And every time I left, their questions would be a little tougher. Uh, you know, who'd you stay with? Where'd you go? Why were you in this area? That kind of thing. Because they have a lot of military installations hidden in the mountains in the Sierra Maestra. Uh, so that's where I spent a lot of my time. They wanted to know why I was there. They knew I was a photographer. They knew I was doing something, but they didn't quite understand it. And even though I would tell them over and over again. Um, so uh, coincidentally, them not realizing this, but I knew my last trip out there was my last trip. I only went out there. I took a few photos, but I really went out there to go deliver all those book dummies that I just mentioned to several of these families who I know I would probably never see again. I wanted to give them something for being a part of it. Um, so I printed 10 of these books, okay? And I took them out there in a big suitcase. 
And uh, so I was traveling all over the countryside and handing all these out. Well, the last book that I had was reserved for Anley, my driver that I mentioned. And the day before I was supposed to leave to back to the U.S., my last day in Cuba, I was in the mountains in Providencia, Cuba. And all of a sudden, this military jeep pulls up. And these two soldiers get out, and they hand over this piece of paper to Anley, who's standing next to me. And uh, they had summoned me to be interrogated uh, in the regional intelligence office in Holguin, um, Cuba, which was about three hours away driving. Okay, it's not easy to get in and out of the mountains. So it was. they wanted me there first thing in the morning. So Anli and I had to leave right away and go find me a place to stay in Holguin. And there was only one room left in the entire place for me to rent that night. Uh, so I went, Holguin's a city, it's not a village. So I went and uh, Anli was nervous for me. You know, he said, you know, uh, he's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm worried about you, you know. Um, and when I knew he was worried, then I started to get worried, you know. So... Anyways, he finds me in this room. He's like, I'll be here first thing in the morning to come grab you, and I'll go with you. Um, but on the way over there, I had to call the U.S. Embassy in Havana and let them know what was happening just in case they detained me and didn't allow me to fly back to the U.S. You know, I could have got charged with espionage or something along those lines. And if, if they charge you with that in Cuba, you're, you're powerless because there's barely any sort of dialogue between diplomatic dialogue between our government and theirs so i knew if they were going to do that to me i'd be fucked and i'd be i may be possibly stuck in cuba for years at that time they had a prisoner from the united states that had been in cuban prisons for over 20 years he uh, was bringing in satellite phones back in the 90s uh, he claimed he was doing it for religious purposes to help out churches down there but they didn't believe him and he was had been in prison so i didn't know if that was going to be me so anyways i went to holguin the next morning I mean, the next morning, Anli came and got me at the rent room that I rented. We rode in a horse cart uh, to the uh, regional office, the intelligence office. They brought me in there. They wouldn't let Anli go in there because I wanted him to go in there as my translator because um, he speaks good English. But they wouldn't let him. They had a translator in there who I had never met. And they had the regional uh, intelligence director. And then they had Cuban intelligence from Havana uh, in the room. And they essentially just asked me a bunch of questions like who I am, why I'm there, why have I come so many times? They've told me they had been f tracking my locations over the years. And I said, that's fine. You know, I'm not hiding anything. And um, they asked, you know, why I had been there. So I told them I was there to show Americans a side of Cuba that they don't know about. And they asked me how I felt about the propaganda posters and the billboards. And I said, I don't care about those. You know, I'm here for the people. You know, the book is going to be apolitical. I'm not going to include one image of Castro or Che Guevara in it. I'm not there for this. I'm not here for that. And I said, actually, I have a copy of the book. You know, they didn't know that that wasn't going to be the final. But I have a copy of the book, you know. Um, and they said, oh, you do? And I was like, yeah, you want to see it? Sure. So I had it in my bag, and I pulled it out, and I gave it to them. And they sat there all thumbing through it. They and in, and in that book, I included a bunch of diary excerpts because I took a detailed diary every day that I was in Cuba. I didn't include any of that in the final published book that everybody else got to see. But they got to see it. So they got to see my personal thoughts. You know, I was very open and honest about how I felt about things and about how I felt I had been misled, misled as an American about these people. Um. And so they kind of put the book down. They went into another room. They talked. The guy from Havana got on the phone with somebody in Havana, came back, and um, 
they said, okay, well, uh, we just got news from Havana or somebody in Havana, and we've been told to tell you that Cuba welcomes you with open arms. So it was a way for me also to kind of serve as a quasi-ambassador from my own country to let them know that there are Americans who don't hate them just because of what we've been told about them. So they saw it as an opportunity for um, two countries, two people to get to know one another. Thank God you had that book. Yeah. You know, that Uh, might have, that was a good icebreaker and also showed to them. They obviously were impressed with it. Yeah. So they, they, did they keep it? No, no, I gave it to the driver. I told them they couldn't keep it. Okay. Wow. That, that's amazing. So can you talk about the book, where, what the name of it, and where, where uh, listeners can find it at? Yeah, so it's called Campesino Cuba. It's actually difficult to find now. Thankfully, it's, uh, it's, it's sold out in Europe. It's almost sold out in the U.S. I have a few copies left, uh, but I'm keeping those. I mean, I'm selling a few, um, but I'm retaining about 20 copies um, um, just for my personal archive uh, and to hold um, you know, for when my next books come out. Um, but... But yeah, I mean, it's called Campesino Cuba. It was published by Ghost Books, G-O-S-T, uh, out of London in 2021, September 2021. And uh, and yeah, I mean, once that book came out, it kind of catapulted my career. I went to Paris, did a book signing uh, at Paris Photo, and, um, you know, it's led to a lot of stuff. What does that title mean? Campesino Cuba. So Campesino is... The term for people in Cuba, not just in Cuba, but really in Latin America, people who live in the countryside. So campo is countryside in Spanish. So like, uh, so if you're a campesino, you live in the countryside. You live off of the land. You're a rural person, most likely a farmer. So campesino is a, is a general term to designate that class of people. Beautiful. Yeah. You teased the listener a little bit earlier about another project you're working on right now, and you've been neck deep in uh with dallas pd homicide unit but i want you to tell the listener before we get into more of that about the police interactions you've you've had you said there was a story oh yeah you want to go back to that yeah i do because we're going to segue right into the okay so yeah when i was 16 years old and i've told some of the detectives this not everybody so i think i don't think lieutenant knows this story i don't even know if andrew knows this story but when i was 16 like i said i grew up in a kind of a bad environment um, if you came from that area, you know, the police didn't treat you well. Um, they assumed you were doing something wrong. And at the time, uh, I had a friend of mine that was living with me cause he had been kicked out of his home. He was 17, I was 16. And so he was staying at my place. Um, my parents had separated at this point. My mom came up to Dallas. Um, my sister went to SMU and so my mom followed her, uh, she had basically kind of given up on me a little bit. She didn't want to see me go to jail or get killed. So she came to Dallas, and uh, so it was just my father and I in the house, and my father didn't really, for lack of a better term, care very much about what I was doing, which is part of the reason why I dropped out of high school. But at the time, my buddy Joey was living with me, and um, we, uh, I had, uh, even though we used to walk to the corner store all the time, I don't know, for some reason, we just did not feel like walking this night. It wasn't, it wasn't raining or anything like that. But this is before cell phones and all that stuff. And so we wanted to go use the pay phone because we didn't have a phone at my house. Okay. So we didn't even have a phone. And uh, my dad didn't want to pay the phone bill. So uh, I asked to borrow his car. Okay. So I had my permit at the time, 16 years old, didn't have my full license yet. And so he's like, sure, just come right back. So we took his car to the corner store to use the pay phone. 
My buddy Joey's on the payphone outside. My car's parked right next to it, or my dad's car's parked right next to it. It's like an old white Chrysler, you know, POS. And um, I go inside the store. Now, I'm 16 years old, and I'm not supposed to be able to buy a lotto ticket, but I bought my first lotto ticket that night. Okay, I picked the five or six numbers or whatever it was, paid a dollar, because that's what I had on me. And then I go outside, and I see Joey up against the wall with two police officers. Mind you, we didn't have anything on us, no drugs or anything like that. They grab me immediately when they understand that I'm with him, throw me up against the wall. And, you know, there's a senior cop. I don't know who he was. Now I know he probably was a sergeant or something like that. I know that now. But he was, I know he was in charge of the other officers because he was the one that was telling them what to do and stuff. Or, you know, they were deferring to him. And there was a couple of, you know, one of the cops was really young. So I guess he was rookie-ish. And anyway, so they throw us up against the wall. They start kicking our legs wider and wider and wider to the point where they can't really get any wider. In fact, they kicked my left leg at this at that point, and I lost my balance uh, with my hands up against the, the side of the corner store and the back of the corner store. And the way the corner store was is it there was parking behind it. That's where the payphone was. So if you were back there, no one could see you unless you happened to be in the parking lot, okay? So anybody driving by the corner store couldn't actually see this happening. And I think they knew that. And so uh, at one point I fell back because I couldn't hold my balance anymore. My legs were, were too wide. And uh, they picked me up by the neck and put me back up, slammed me up against the wall. These other two cops pulled up. They are all laughing at us. They start kicking us, punching us in the back. And the I guess the guy that was in charge, like I said, he must have been the sergeant or whoever. He was the older cop. He was like he kept talking like a hundred miles an hour. Okay, like he had a he had a a lot of energy. Okay. Now, I say that because at this time I was 16, I had been around people who had taken something that, you know, might give you a lot of energy, okay? He wasn't just amped up like from adrenaline. This guy was on something, okay? And like Joey and I were kind of looking at each other and kind of talking in between ourselves when when they would talk amongst themselves. And finally, this guy, he goes around to the side of my dad's car. Car's locked, okay? And... uh he says, he says something along the lines of, you know, uh, give me the keys to this car, he, he's, you know, whatever, and they're looking in my pockets. Well, I had my keys in my shoe, okay? I don't know why, but I, we used to put my keys, whenever I did drive my dad's car, I put it in my shoe. I never put it in my pocket. So they couldn't find the keys. They didn't, our shoes were still on. And I was like, no, I won't give you the keys, or, you know, I don't know where the keys are or whatever. And he goes, if you don't give me the keys, I'm going to break this car window and get into the car and so at that point we're on the ground again they're searching all over they find the keys and i said you can't get in the car or whatever i was 16 years old. i didn't know and i was like you can't get in the car without our permission you have no reason to suspect us we don't, we're not doing anything wrong and he goes all i need is a reason and so what he does is he goes around the side of the car clicks his flashlight he looks in the passenger window like he's looking at the floorboard and he says oh he calls over the rookie this young kid, he looks like he's 14 years old, and he says, come here. He goes, you see that? Almost like he had to have a, someone else corroborate. I don't know. And the rookie looks down. He looks at this guy. He looks down again. He looks back up at the guy, and he goes, yeah. Okay. So now, mind you, my dad, 
This is his car. My dad and my, my, and my mom have never, ever done drugs. They've never smoked a cigarette. They never had a drink around us. or They don't, they don't drink. In fact, my whole dad's family is like that because my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a heavy smoker and a heavy drinker. And so they, all the sib, him and his siblings grew up uh, detesting alcohol and smoking. So anyways, so they find the keys, my shoe, they open the car door, and he pulls out this little baggie which looks like crystal meth or cocaine or something along those lines. And man, this guy is sweating. Okay. I think to this day, that's his baggie. He, and he stuck pocket. that shit down there because he wanted a reason to get in the car and he wanted a reason to put something on us because that's the kind of shit that they did back then. I don't know if they do it now. I'm not, you know, hating on Corpus Christi police now for all I know, they're all great people. But at this time and, you know, uh, in the early nineties, you know, it was a lot of crime in my area, in the neighborhood I grew up in. So they probably just said, fuck it. Fuck these kids. You know, they shouldn't have been here. You know, this is where you live. This is what you get. So they start, you know, one of them uh, punches me in the side, picks me up because I, I dared talk back to this guy. They throw me one, throw me in the back of one car. They throw uh, Joey in the back of another car. And they come, one of the cop car, cops come to the car um, and he's telling me all this shit. Oh, you're going to, this is a state felony. You're going to state prison. They're going to rape you. They're going to F you up, blah, blah, blah. He's just trying to put all this fear into me. Now I'm screwed. My life's over, that kind of thing. I'm 16 years old, okay? I've got handcuffs on me, okay? They drive us to this field that's not too far from that area. They let us out, take our cuffs off, push us down to the ground, and they get in their cars and they leave, that's how they left us. And your dad's car was way back where it was back over there. They never towed it or nothing. So then I had to walk. We had to walk miles to get back to the corner store. They threw the keys in the car, so somebody could have stolen it. But we got in the car, drove home, and told my dad about it. And the first question he asked, "Well, what'd you do wrong? What kind of taste did that leave in your mouth?" I and mean, just being young and oh, I hated cops. Yeah, you know, I hated cops. Um, you know. And, and, you know, it's funny because part of the reason that I wanted to do this project was because I didn't really have a lot of interactions with police officers up until that point. You know, this happened when I was 16. I turned 45 in August. So up until I was doing this, this is part of the reason why I was like, you know what? I want to go as deep as I can into the police department, if they'll let me, and go into the homicide unit. I want to see who these people really are, just like Cuba. So you had no interactions from 16 up until you started this project personally with unless with i got pulled over okay. for speeding or whatever but you like the rest of us have seen historically you're a big fan of history mm-hmm. history of police abuse mm-hmm. and, and and so did that kind of like you know did that add to your opinion yeah of course that added to my opinion um and you know and and i've i've dedicated my life to photographing socioeconomic or social injustice okay mm-hmm. that includes you know um sometimes uh dealing with people who did not also like police officers for whatever reason uh, and so i'd hear a lot of these stories or whatever um i was told and when i went to vegas in fact that uh if i go under the tunnels the police are not coming after me so if i get stabbed or killed down there i'm on my own um so You know, I had a lot of preconceptions, but I'm also aware that I 
was also had misconceptions that that the possibility was that I had misconceptions about law enforcement and about police officers and part of the reason why I wanted to do this homicide project was not just because of misconceptions that I may have but I knew that there was misconceptions that the public had about law enforcement because of what happened um, you know with all the police stuff that happened over the last two or three years after George Floyd and all that. And I knew there was a lot of protests going on, a lot of people saying defund the police and blah, blah, blah. And even I knew that's probably not a smart idea. And so I wanted to deep dive into a law, into do a law enforcement project or a project involving homicide and law enforcement because I wanted to go, I thought about it. I was like, what is the part of the police department where these people are really, really doing something for the public good? Okay. I, I mean, I, I'm still not convinced that whenever you guys pull over for somebody going 10 miles over the speed limit that you're doing a public good. But I wanted to go somewhere where I knew in the police department that these people were out there doing the worst part of society. They're dealing with the worst part of society besides child abuse and stuff like that, of course. But what it, you know, who are the ones that are cleaning up after the worst ass instances in society where people kill each other? And you know, they see the, 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 the grime. And so I wanted to go to the worst of it. And so uh, I wanted to get as deep as I could with these people. Yeah, you're you're dealing with detectives and, and police that are investigating unmistakably <laughs> the worst crime that, that's committed. And then you have child abuse, you have internet's crime, internet crimes against children, and anything deal, dealing with a child, I think we can all agree on that's the worst of the worst. Yeah, and I wanted to see what kind of sacrifices these people were really making. And that's why I went in already telling them I've got to be able to photograph some of you at home because if I just photograph you at the office I know that this is just you at the office there's another side of that there's a whole nother side of that and that was not an easy thing for you to accomplish by the way because everyone I remember when we first heard that we were like he wants to come in our house like and I know Grubbs was like, he's not fucking photographing my kids or my wife. But, of course, that's how Grubbs is, and you know that. But, I mean, you know. And I photographed him and his kids. I know, exactly. <laughs> he's all talk, exactly. But a lot of guys were just like, you know, like. He's a Grubbs charmer. Oh. <laughs> but it's like, you know, like, it was the Pretty why persistent. and what are they going to do with this photo. And, you know, it was just the no one's ever done it before. No one's ever even thought to do it before. So I think that was why we were just kind of like, we're guinea pigs here. But You are guinea pigs. And what I wanted to do is, just like Cuba, just like Spina and all these other projects, I want the general public to see these homicide detectives as people. So you had your preconceived notions before from your experiences. Have those changed now that you have the experiences that you've had running around with these guys? Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's what I really want to kind of bring home to you guys, um, you know, because you're all cops or former cops or whatever. And... I allowed myself to be vulnerable to that change, you know, like what I spoke of earlier. You know, if I, I knew if I came in here with preconceived notions and I was married to them, that would affect my ability to document honestly. And part of the documentation that I'm doing is that I'm not just documenting them, but it's also a mirror. I'm documenting my own transition as an individual and not just with this project, but with every project, Right. So I just recently gave an interview uh, about this to Bill Shapiro. He's the former editor-in-chief of Life Magazine. It's for a separate podcast. And, uh, you know, and I was telling him that, you know, that's my advice that I give young photographers all the time who think that they have to know a lot about one thing before they go and document it. And that's the worst thing you can do. The best thing to do is go when you don't know anything about it or barely anything about it so that you can 
kind of experience that transition personally and document that. And so now that I've had time to be with these guys, you know, I was with them every single day from April 1st to August 31st last year. That's five months solid every single day. And that's why Lieutenant, I think him and I have bonded so much because besides the fact that we both love baseball um, is because him and I have had the closest, like he's, he finally has another victim that has had the same schedule as him. Because no matter what squad is up, he goes to a lot of these scenes. And I would see him at a lot of these scenes. Oh, hey, how are you going? How are you doing, Lieutenant? We were just at a murder for another squad two days ago, and now we're at another murder for a new squad. And so him and I kind of bonded, I think, on that level. But, you know, uh, my my understanding and my comprehension of what you guys, I say you in general, police now, even patrol, when I go and I talk to a lot of these patrol guys, has been widened because of that. And, and I really wish, I hope that I can convey that honestly, uh, justifiably when this project comes out in book form. I hope that the general public, just like Cuba, just like Spina, just like everything else I've done, is able to look at this work and say, oh, I get it now. These people are also people and it sucks for them too. And then the sacrifice becomes more apparent. The fact that they have to go and deal with this part of society and to deal with it psychologically and emotionally and mentally, and then go home to their families. Um, that's important for people to understand because there's such a myth about homicide and homicide detectives, and it's so Hollywoodized. And, and uh, you know, when you're seeing that every day, I mean, I felt myself moving and transitioning to a desensitized individual, you know, and I think that's why I've bonded so well with these guys is, you know, and I, and I hate that I have to leave them, honestly, because I feel like I'm leaving friends. So one of the things I know I kind of prepped you on this question once before, but um, every one of us in this room can tell you a case that has stuck with us, whether it be from a patrol standpoint or when we've been in, in the investigative unit. Is there any one particular murder scene, suicide scene, any scene that you've been to that has stuck with you since you've been with us? Yeah, I mean, there's several, but I would say that um, the one, the one that I can't really forget um, – is a suicide scene. And honestly, you know, I think that's part of the tragedy that these homicide detectives have to deal with that most people don't realize is that they have to go to all these suicides and a lot of these unexplained and naturals and stuff like that. Um, but for me, it's the suicides that really bother me the most. It's not even the homicides because the homicide, it's, it, you know, uh, it wasn't really meant to happen. It happened for some, I mean, sometimes it's premeditated obviously, but for the most part, you know, um, it could have been avoided from one way or another. But with suicide, that that's a solo mission. That's something that somebody intended to do, and they did it. And uh, to me, that, that just kind of like the feel of that, this, the energy in a room like that really, really uh, bothers me still to this day. But there was one in particular where a lady had jumped off of the high five and fell down uh, and hit 75. Um and she got hit by a car. And uh, when I was there on scene and they were putting her body into the into the bag, I don't know how graphic I can get, but when they were putting her body into the bag, I mean, it was just like um, collecting a bag of jello. And her entire face was missing. It was like a, a giant cave where her face used to be from ear to ear. Um, and that really bothered me. It still does. Yeah, I can see if I could physical reaction you just describing that scene mm -hmm. and we can be as descriptive as you want on this uh we 
Andrea came on for an earlier episode, and she described a horrible suicide. Uh, basically, one of these family annihilators mm-hmm. uh, killed his uh, his new wife and the two kids, and then himself. And uh, you know, those are <laughs> those are one of the most selfish things to you know to take out innocent. Yeah, sure. You do it yourself, whatever. But you know, to to, to bring people other with other people, and I and I've been to murder suicides. Um, that that's troubling as well. Um, but thankfully, knock on wood, I have not been to one where a child was murdered yet. Right before I came on to uh, in April, they had just had a child that had just been killed, uh, a two year old in the backseat of a car. Um, that literally happened like two or three days right before I showed up last year. So thankfully I missed that one. Um, you know, it's gotten to the point now where I don't like, you know, I don't think um, like, I, I see the call come in when they come in You know, I'm on all these group texts as well. And like, I know exactly what I'm going to see when I get there, you know, like I, I I've, it's so weird that I get to kind of dip my life into their life because I feel like, uh, and I think maybe that's why I feel so connected to them because I'm up with them at four o'clock in the morning. I'm at the headquarters with them. And so I, I, you know, I'm not a homicide detective, but I sure as hell feel like one. And I sure as hell lived like one over the last year. Your eyes and your mind have seen what they've seen and you don't have to put it together quite like they put it together, but you still have to process all the violence and all the horrible images that they see as well. Oh yeah. I mean, when I go on scene with these detectives, especially when it's a suicide, it's usually just one detective. They don't go as a squad. You know, I'm I'm experiencing that that scene the same moment that they are, and I'm also asking questions. You can ask Lieutenant. I mean, I'm not just there as a casual observer. I'm also interested in in what's happening and asking questions and stuff like that. And uh, you know, you're kind of a professional observer at this point, and correct. and you you capture things in a really unique perspective from where I'm sitting. You know, you you've been able to explain better than most people can explain why they do what they do. How do you see the actual investigations differ from what you see on TV and in the Hollywood style? Oh man, it's so ridiculous. Like, you know, and it, it's also funny because once I, since I started doing this, I, I don't enjoy looking at like homicide shows or detective shows, you know, it's so ridiculous and it's so off the mark usually. Um, so I would say that number one, um, the detectives here—I mean, I haven't photographed every homicide unit, obviously, in the United States—but the detectives here are really. And I'm not just saying this because one of them sitting here, but they're really, really good. They're really good at understanding what in the world is going on when they get to a scene, uh, even when it's a chaotic scene. They're very good at um, parsing information from individuals and understanding what's relevant and what's not relevant. So I would say that number one, it doesn't happen. Not everything happens immediately, you know. On TV shows, they get a fingerprint and they they show some dude on the computer and it's like, and then it's like, oh, it's this dude right here and he lives right here. Let's go get him. You know, it's like it's it's nothing like that whatsoever. Um, but it has made me realize how dependent they are on technology and video cameras and cell phone technology and stuff like that. And man, it really really makes me makes me wonder how in the hell they even solved homicides 20 30 40 years ago because it's so they're so dependent on i mean they can do it without it but it's a whole hell of a lot harder it's like joe and i talked about on our episode because it's yeah we can't solve it without it but 
I mean, as you've seen in the other side of it, which is the courtroom aspect of it, the juries want so much more. They want on video with a confession, with DNA, with ballistics, you know, they want so many different things. And I don't know if it's because CSI or the shows, you know, perpetuate that myth of if you don't have DNA, it didn't happen, even though it's on video kind of a thing. But it definitely, yeah, like it's, it's so so much of the investigation goes into that these days, it seems like. Well, and it's interesting because the general public doesn't understand. And that's what makes homicide, not the subject, but the detectives, the unit, so interesting because, you know, they're not just cops. They're like super cops because they have to go out there and not only f- try to solve what happened, right? Try to figure out what happened in a chaotic situation, but they also are out there constantly thinking about the jury, Right. Well, what if this or what if that or will this be passable or will this be no build? You know, will this even go to court? You know, uh, you know, is this something that I can stick on the suspect? You know, like, is the suspect going to get out? Like, what, am I going to go through all this and the suspect's going to get off? You know, so like they have to constantly be thinking about not just what's happening then, but also what happened in the past that led up to that event. But what is also going to happen in the future with court and the indictment and trial? Yeah, just showing up and just getting to tab seven and getting an arrest warrant and probable cause affidavit, that's that's the beginning. Mm-hmm. There is a long line to get to the end of that line when it comes from a, looking at from a prosecutorial standpoint. And y'all, y'all have a recent story of Andrea kind of talked about it a little bit in her episode, but you were actually there. Um, can you talk about that, Andrea? Just kind of kick it off and let uh, yeah. let Richard give his perspective of it and yeah, what he I'm, did. I'm, I'm curious because I think the biggest thing for me and some of the detectives is just seeing how Richard sees things. Because if you think about it, there's very few people who've seen as many death scenes as he has. Well, there's nobody who aren't police, really. And he's probably seen more than some small agency cops will see in their entire career. So it's really interesting to see like how he reflects back what we're experiencing. We don't have time to sit back and think about how it's affecting us. And you can like capture that. But anyway, um, I had a murder case from 2020 and I went to trial last August. And so Richard was there. And um, the judge was really cool and let him in the courtroom to photograph, which isn't always the case for most judges, as we know. Um, It was a pretty basic case. I mean, it was caught on video and he was shot 16 times in the back. Victim was unarmed. Whole thing was on video. The slide locks back. I really didn't think there was much of a trial. I mean, he was claiming self-defense, but um, long story short, the jury believed him and he walked. And I told Richard, if I thought he was going to get a not guilty, I wouldn't have invited him to come to photograph that trial because I really just thought it was going to be a moment of justice for these parents. I did not think this was going to happen. So, I mean, that's that's a situation where, you know, I'm really glad that you invited me to go well, because yeah, but it was the only one I've ever lost. I didn't want to see the memorial. <laughs> I got to that. document. I, mean, I got to shit. document Detective Isom at that moment right after the right after the trial can you describe to the listener what your role was for that what 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 did you do for this trial i mean you you obviously didn't know the outcome when you got there but yeah can you can you tell the listener walk them through what you did well you know it's one of those things right where you don't you don't really understand something until you're involved in it and what i mean by that is i mean you don't know what it's like to have a son murdered until you've had a son murdered and you don't know what it's like to go to the trial of your son's murder until you go through that trial as parents. So I went initially 
thinking just like everybody else, including Detective Isom, that it was going to be a guilty charge. You know, the guy was shot 16 times in the back on the ground, you know. And so I thought it was just going to be a simple, you know, situation. But I wanted to go and talk to the parents of the kid that was murdered and talk to his family. So I went into a separate room with them and did an extended audio interview, almost 30, 45 minutes, and asking them all sorts of questions about their son. You know, and when I ask questions during these audio interviews, I'm not just asking basic questions. I'm asking really personal questions, you know, because I want to know, once again, I want to make these individuals people. I want to, I, and when, when someone reads this or listens to the audio interview, I want them to imagine their son, okay? And the only way you can do that is to really talk about little things like, what did your son do that made you laugh? You know, can, can you remember uh, your son's first day of school? Uh, you know, little personal things that we can all pretty much relate to those that have kids. Um, you know, uh, what what's something that your son used to do that, you know, uh, that everybody knows that individual to do? Was it a saying that he used to do or the way he used to laugh? You know, that kind of thing. Like, give me something tangible. And so I talked to them and I went and also uh tracked down the mother of the suspect and asked her to interview her she was apprehensive at first but then she understood what i was doing i said i want to get your experience as a mother okay regardless if your son did it or not i want to know what it's like for you to have a son who's on trial for murder and you may lose this son forever because no one ever thinks about the family of the suspect okay and so doesn't mean they're all guilty just because their son did something stupid and that's part of the reason why i'm doing this project as well I also want to have some sort of voice for the perpetrator's families who nobody, nobody ever hears about. So I wanted to go and talk to her. And so we sat in a separate room and I talked to her and she, she had hope that he was going to come out not guilty, but you could see it in her face and hear it in her voice that she didn't think that was going to happen, that he was probably going to get convicted and she would lose him forever. And I asked about their family traditions and what did he used to do at family picnics and parties and, you know, his first day of school and what was that like and that kind of thing. And I really was trying to get an understanding of what he was as a child and uh, what their family dynamic was and what she was going to miss once he's gone forever, if he ends up getting convicted. And so when the trial resumed and the judge came out and the jury came out and they said not guilty, the whole place just went up and all kinds of people stormed out of class, the courtroom who were on the, the, the victim side in disbelief. They're all screaming and yelling and running out of the courtroom. And then on the suspect side, they're also just elated, of course, and screaming. The, the mother almost fainted. The mother of the suspect almost fainted. So I went over there and photographed her uh, of that moment that she heard the not guilty uh, right after she heard the not guilty verdict, knowing that her son is coming home um, soon anyway. And then I turned around, and even though all everybody in the family that was there for the uh, victim had left, they were outside in, in the hallway outside of the courtroom. The mother and the father were by themselves, standing there hugging each other under the light. Um, and so I photographed them there in that moment. Um, and then right after that, that's when... Detective Ison was kind of standing there in disbelief, and I photographed her, and you can just see this thousand-mile stare that she has um, because she she couldn't believe it. Andrea, we talked about that. Can can you explain what was going through your mind whenever that happened? I mean, like I fucked up. That's 
what I thought. I mean, I don't know. I, I asked the DA and the investigator and everybody on that case, like, what did I do? Because I just assumed, I mean, and we know we don't use the term slam dunk case for a reason because there's no such thing as a slam dunk case. But I really felt confident that I didn't know what else I could have done different. Um, and the jury just did what they did. So I just, it all weekend, all week, it still bothers me to this day. Um, it's going to be one of those cases I always take with me, unfortunately. Just yeah. because it's like, you know, that's your one job and you didn't do it. So, you, you know, everybody, you could do your job uh, a thousand, thousand percent, and it's still you, it's still up to 12 yeah. members of a jury to, uh, to make that decision. Well, and it's also heavily dependent on the prosecutorial that situation. Too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You have no idea. There's all these elements in this. Mm-hmm. It's presentation. And, and a lot of times, mm-hmm. what the, uh, it, in, on both sides, and uh, I've been in enough court cases that, uh, it is a presentation on the prosecutorial side and, and as well as the defense side. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors that need mm-hmm. to be put up. And sometimes a defense attorney, all he has is smoke and mirrors or she to, to, to present it or to defend their mm-hmm. client. That's her job. Well, and Richard actually interviewed him, the defense attorney, later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I interviewed him just, later on. I went to his office and interviewed him. Not just, not just about that case. I, I mentioned that case to him. We talked about that for about an hour. Uh, the whole interview was about an hour, but I also talked to him just in general about his his theory about doing defense and why defense uh, and all those things, which was really, really interesting to hear because they're all so easy to vilify. Yeah. Why would you defend somebody like mm-hmm. that? How can you sleep at night? And he had some really, really interesting answers to that uh, because, I, you know, as Andrew or Lieutenant or, uh, will tell you, when I do interview people and I ask them questions, I get very, very personal. I get very deep because if not, I'm not here for the shit show. Like, don't give me the facade. I want to know the real deal. Um, and so asking him those questions, especially about that case, uh, was very, very interesting. Well, you want to humanize everybody. I mean, every, everybody, the whether the victim's family or the uh, people related to the victim or even the suspect's family, because you and I talked off air earlier about there's not a crime that hasn't been committed, no matter how heinous and egregious that somebody somewhere in the world was connected to that suspect. That is not heartbroken and upset. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, I, here's the thing. With my work, whether whatever the project is, I'm always trying to boil everything down to their base alloy, okay? No matter what it is, whether it's a person or whether it's a situation or a scene, I'm trying to boil everything down to its core elements because that's really when you start to understand things. With you doing all these interviews, looking back at childhoods, looking back at all this, are there any decisions similar decisions being made by either victims suspects or even when you went and documented the homeless in vegas any similar decisions you've been made that are driving them to these particular outcomes i would say that of all the situations that i've photographed where people were in trouble or not in good situations all boils down to hopelessness Mm. people give up hope they feel like there's nothing there for them. They feel like there's nothing going to be there for them for the future, so they have nothing to lose. Might as well get fucked up and go do stupid shit because literally they have nothing else working for them. Now, that's an illusion. I grew up in an environment where a lot of these same people who dealt drugs and got shot at and shot at other people were also infected with this understand or this belief that uh, because you got to understand, even me growing up, I was told by teachers. You're going to end up in jail or killed by the time you're 21 years old because of where you're from, okay? These are teachers, okay? So um, 
you know, so that I can, so I can also empathize with that. When we go to a homicide scene and I see some young 16 year old kid and he's got his pants down around his, his butt and yeah, it's, it's funny to look at, uh, you know, but what I'm looking at is I'm looking at a former version of myself when I was 16, 15 years old. And I'm also looking at friends who didn't make it, friends who were killed, friends who went to jail, uh, that I grew up with. Um, you know, I don't, I still, as an adult now who's experienced, I still think that because I got myself out of that situation, I succeeded. Um, but I consider myself lucky. You know, it's a little bit, obviously I, I give myself a little bit of credit for doing that, but, um, you know, sometimes things kind of worked out in my way. There was lots of situations that I probably shouldn't have made it out of. Um, so I can't necessarily just judge someone who's on the ground who got killed over a $5 bag of weed um, because I used to carry down around $5 bags of weed, you know, and it could have gone wrong very easily. And thank God that it didn't. There's always a story that led them up to that point of laying on the ground. Absolutely. With a $5 bag of weed. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen people get killed over nothing just since doing this project. And that hopelessness you said, too, that's interesting because it really does capture multiple kinds of deaths, I think. I remember when I was a rookie being at some of these unexplains and there's like these hoarders, right? Nobody. Like, we can't find next to kin because no one cares about them enough. And they let themselves go. And you're like, they used to be a person at one point. They used to have a career. They used to have a family. And now they're homeless like this morning, we don't know who he is. They're in this house with cats and all these things. And it's like when, when you give up on life, life gives up on you. And I then mean, you get into the suicide stuff. And you read these suicide notes. I had a double suicide um, last year, two sisters. And you read these notes and you're just like, how did you go from childhood, everything's whatever, to becoming a killer, to becoming killing yourself with your sister, to becoming a hoarder and dying alone? Like, how did you just lose it? in this moment and what caused that. And it's just interesting because it's, you see it in almost every single death case in some form or fashion, it seems like. Yeah. And there's a spectrum of that, obviously, but you see that in, in every, I, I see that, you know, when I talk to homeless people and I talk to drug addicts and I, the people who lived underground in Vegas, I mean, there was people there that were doctors, lawyers. Okay. These are people who are success stories and then they end up being homeless and living in a tunnel addicted to heroin. Okay. So, I mean, you know, not everybody's a, uh, a piece of shit. There are some piece of shit people, obviously, who do dumb things. But sometimes people just make terrible decisions that are impulsive, and then it, it it's the wrong place, wrong time, and they get caught up in it. And, you know, so I don't, I don't write everybody off just because they're in a bad situation. When you started off this project with uh, Dallas Police Homicide Unit, your original mission that you set out to accomplish, do you felt you do you feel you accomplished that, or did it evolve and you went even better than you thought it would come out? No, I still have the original mission in that I wanted to kind of show homicide unit as people first and foremost. Um, I wanted to show all the stuff they have to deal with, like suicides, unexplained naturals that most people don't think they have to deal with it. Um, and I feel like. I feel like I've achieved a lot of the things that I wanted to achieve visually. Um, and so, yeah, I'm pretty satisfied at where I'm at right now. Um, I'm just kind of wrapping things up over this next month. Um, I'm only with them for probably another three weeks. Uh, and then that's it on the investigative part. And uh, I'm, I'm like, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm not looking forward to it. You said there's some days that you, you see a, text thread come through oh we have another one and they feel the same way 
you, you've been all across the world uh, around different types of people, you know, successful people, rich people, uh, poor people, uh, violent people. Uh, has your perspective on humanity changed at all with all the violence and all the uh, bodies that you have seen since you've been with Dallas Hobbeson? I don't know that my perspective has changed because if I ever kind of let that candle of hope go out, then I'm in trouble. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's, you know, I, I'm not a perfect individual. Uh, you know, there's been, there's been days where, you know, I've had problems with depression and, uh, sometimes going to these scenes exacerbates that, uh, especially when I see suicides and, you know, sometimes it looks like a, an alternate alternative, um, to living. But, you know, uh, when it comes to my perspective on, on humanity, no, it, it's only solidified it. Because I understand that I'm seeing it on, on an assembly line with you guys, with homicide. I'm seeing it on an assembly line where I'm at the, the bottom of it. You know, kind of like the I Love Lucy uh, episode where she can't catch up to all the chocolates. Yeah, well, those are murders. And, uh, and not just murders, but suicides and everything else. And so I understand that I'm seeing it at a concentrated level. And what it really makes me do is it really makes me not feel sorry, but I really empathize for the individuals who are in homicide and who've been there for years uh, on what that has taken away from them. You know, and they don't really quite realize that. Because once you kind of take that pill, you can't untake it. And I've taken that pill now, and I can't untake it. And I wish in a way that I could have never known that. But at the same time, it's like I also have to sacrifice myself if I'm going to document it for the general public. Um, so, and I've, I've done that. And it's not necessarily been the best experience as far as how that feels emotionally, uh, dealing with death and that and in a concentrated form. But it's made me respect them a whole lot more to the point where, you know, it's almost like a sense of love. Like I love these detectives, you know, it's, it's beyond just, you know, it's beyond just, you know, camaraderie. It's beyond just just a project. You've it's beyond just a project. You've, you've gained a family, a new family now. I I like to feel that way. I don't know if the feelings reciprocated, but yes, we do. But uh, you know, well, but, now that I have them right here, so lieutenant and uh, detective, has your opinion of Richard and his mission when you first met him has it changed at all? And do you see? Have you seen a change in him? I wouldn't say the opinion has necessarily changed. I've gotten it's it's more I've gotten used to him or being around. Him. I guess I, I guess you could say because I've gotten to know more about the project and I've got as I've gotten to know more about it, I've gotten more interested in it. Like one of the things he kind of touched on it a little bit earlier was we don't pay attention to the victims fam- or the uh, suspects family afterwards. Mm-hmm. And he gave a number I can't remember the exact number, but he gave a number of uh, groups that are out there to deal with the victims family versus the numbers that are out there to give support to the suspects family and the, the suspect family number is so low that it seems like zero, zero he's saying yeah zero we we don't we don't as a group understand how much it affects the suspects family because we're so concentrated on speaking for the victim and it, that that to me was very interesting to hear and you know i think there's a misconception like there are some cases like i would argue 16 times in the back on video where i don't have a lot of sympathy for that suspect but there's other cases where you know, a guy is high and is incredibly sorry. And, you know, I mean, not every case is just a brutal 
killing of somebody with no remorse. There are some cases where shit just went wrong or a kid's playing with a gun and he was drunk and he was like, you killed your friend. I mean, so there has to be a level of empathy, I think. But I think like Richard said, like when you peek behind the curtain and you see all the stuff that's the darkness, you can't really ever go back to knowing what it's like before. And a lot of us, I think, do this job in law enforcement to protect people we care about from ever having to know in that world. We know it exists and we take on this mental health stuff that we do, but we do it to make their lives better and their world better, hopefully. Yeah, there's an innocence lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think a lot of the listeners uh, really realize how emotional uh, of a job this is whether you're in a homo- you're a homicide detective or you're a child abuse detective or even family violence you, uh, or even patrol just even going at all those scenes out in patrol you have yeah. to basically you're a swiss army knife of of a person and you could be dealing with a drug house and go immediately to a family disturbance and some of the people some of the officers that are basically being a marriage counselor and and, and solving a marriage dispute don't even have a husband or a wife of their own remember, or children of their own i remember being 23 years old in south central going to a call and they're like he called me a bitch and i was like i am 23 i don't know what the fuck i'm supposed to tell you people about right. like sticks and stones like what am i i mean you know like yeah. but it really is like the yeah. well and then and then somebody like they have a they have a child you know i hell i didn't have a child till late in life i didn't know how to i didn't know how to navigate that i just had to make it up as i go and then go right from in some cases like we talk about patrol they go from a foot chase then they, you know, an hour later, they're going to a family disturbance or they're going to a dead body or they're going to a, a suicide call. There is a roller coaster of emotions. I mean, when you were in patrol, do you remember your transition from being a quote unquote normal citizen uh, emotionally to seeing dead bodies to seeing stuff? And then you became like this more desensitized, uh, aware person? I do actually. Well, see, I, I had some level of exposure before because i worked at terrell state mental hospital and, oh okay and, and that was okay. i think that kind of prepped me but it didn't prep me you know all the way but i do remember seeing uh the first dead body i remember the feeling and just uh you know the uh, widened eyes and kind of shock and then after a while it become normal oh, yeah. you know and i'm sure that's changed for you absolutely i mean how do you deal with with seeing the grief and seeing the violence and uh, we all have you know you mentioned the anxiety we all have anxiety and we all have moments of sadness and depression and and we have to battle through it um the best we can how do you deal with all this i mean i drink uh honestly and also not only that but it's but i don't want to paint that as like oh i'm dependent on the bottle to Mm -hmm. get through the day like it's not like that at all i mean i just i enjoy drinking but um but no i think what it is is and I think it's, I, you know, and I don't want to speak, you know, uh, for everybody here, but, you know, I think that with um, with these homicide detectives, it's a little bit of the same from what I've noticed is that they kind of, honestly, they deal with it by depending on one another. You know, we go on scenes and we're, you know, kind of making jokes a little bit and laughing and, you know, talking about other stuff. And, you know, one of the things that homicide detectives love to do is tell stories. They love to talk about hom- other cases or whatever. And man, this time, do you remember this reminds me of this other one? And they're like, oh, yeah, and that kind of thing. And they, they, there's like, I guess you could just chalk it up to camaraderie. But what it is is it's, it's, like a, it's just like this relation that they all have with one another, that they can understand one another because um, uh, they've seen it all. And I felt, I felt like I had that after the first month and a half with these people. I mean, I felt like, you know, 
I could go on scene and, and notice things with them and we'd make jokes about stuff. Oh man, wow, that's terrible. Or, you know, whatever, not, not in a heinous way, but you know, not in a callous way, but, um, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, is that it just, um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. No, I get it. And you have, I mean, he's up in the office with us and he's just in a little circle with us. It's story time with Jeff and all the other things we do. And he just jumps right in. I mean, he's, it's like he's part of the group. I mean, honestly, we forget because he's we're so used to him being there. Well, he goes from being part of a village. Now he's part of a different kind of village in yeah. Dallas PD and the homicide unit. And that's and he's learned so much from y'all just as you from him. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see it in Lieutenant's face when he's talking about the perspective of the family. Uh, nobody taking into account the family of the suspect. And I want to make it clear to everybody who's listening and not just, you know, here or anywhere is that this project specifically is not about homicide detectives. Okay. It's about homicide. It's about how homicide affects us as a society. It's a societal phenomenon. So in order for me to look at that, I have to look at it from a 30,000 foot view and I have to look at it in three parts, victims and their families, perpetrators and their families. And then those who are caught literally and figuratively in the middle, and they'll be in the middle of the book the investigative part. So you have the homicide detectives, but I'm also photographed. I photographed the medical examiner's office. I photographed the anthropologist. I photographed some of the PES girls that are out there doing crime scene because they have to deal with it. The body snatchers that come and get the body. So I'm photographing them. Everybody kind of doing everybody, all this that relates to one event. And so how does this homicide affect, how does the act itself affect all parties involved? You know, I don't care about case-by-case basis. I'm not going to be following a particular case. It's about how the act itself as a societal phenomenon affects us as a people, as a society. It's incredible. Uh, you know, I, Lieutenant had this idea for this episode, and, and I can't thank you enough for, for bringing this up and, and bringing you here to sit behind this mic because it's, it's, you're an incredibly impressive human being. Wow. I mean, really, and what you're delivering to society is it's invaluable, you know. And what showing a peek behind the curtain uh, of anything is 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 impressive and important. But doing it um, with homicide, because there's not there's not anybody in here that hasn't experienced death in some way. We've just experienced a lot more. Mm-hmm. What keeps driving you to immerse yourself into these these projects what what drives you i'm driven i'm just driven by um you know this this sense this belief that i have i'm convinced because i've witnessed it many many times but i'm convinced that if people just listen empathy is an idea it's impossible to put myself in your shoes right I can imagine what it's like to be you. I can imagine what it's like to live your life and for you to go home and make love to your wife and all that stuff, but I can't be you. It's impossible until we figure out how to mesh my brain into your body. That'll never, ever happen. So all I can do is use the tools that I have available. And for me, photography is that strongest tool. It's my hammer. It's my anvil. It's more powerful to me than writing about it. It's more powerful than doing video to me, photography is my tool. That's my hammer. And so for me, everything always boils down to how can I accurately make this group of people feel as close as possible to what this group of people are feeling. Okay, so that's 
that's my whole goal. Now, regardless of what the situation is, whether it be homeless people living in Vegas or whether it be homeless children living in Texas and Dallas that I photographed for two years, or whether it be, you know, whatever the case may be, it's about getting this group of people to understand and maybe possibly have a sliver of feeling about what it's like to be these people. Okay. So that's my goal in everything that I do. And I, I refuse to get in the, even though I'm in the middle of projects sometimes I'm like, man, why the fuck am I here? You know, but I just continue to push forward at the hope that one individual, that one individual later on will see those images and be like, okay, now I understand this changes my viewpoint on this. And if I can do that to one person, 5, 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years down the road, then I've succeeded. And, and, and I told that to Bill Shapiro too recently. I was like, you have to, as a photographer, a documentary photographer, understand that you have to take the risk of living, of suffering in darkness as a photographer, not ever seeing the fruits of your labor. You understand? So I may die 20 years from now or five years from now or whatever, and my work is not impactful enough until 50 years from now when my archive or whatever gets rummaged through or somebody picks up my book and then it becomes this other big thing, a movie or whatever, okay? So, you know, I am always working with that understanding that it's not for me, it's for others. And so I'm, I'm on a big thing right now. I'm pissing a lot of people off in my industry right now because I'm basically bitching at all these photographers who are obsessed with themselves and want to always photograph their thing and their, you know, emotions and all this other stuff and never leave their house, okay? They just want to photograph themselves all the time or do self-portraiture and, oh, this is when I was sad and this is when I was happy. And, like, and they're making big art projects about it and selling prints for ten, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 each. I don't care about any of that bullshit, okay? My work is for others. I work primarily in the service of others. And so, um, you know, I, don't, I, I could give a rat's ass if anybody... You know, I, this is going to be a little lewd, but I'm not here to sign titties. I'm here to create a document um, that will be used for educational purposes, either personal or, uh, you know, on an institutional level later on. So, Richard, I know I know a little bit of what you've got coming up, um, and I, I know this is one of Joe's points, and it kind of – this is – I'm kind of going this direction because of what you just said. Um, you talked about hopelessness earlier and where you came from and being a high school dropout. And I know that you're about to go do a lecture at a Ivy League college. Is there anything you want to say out there for kids, you know, that came from your same upbringing, your kind of the kind of circumstances you had of being a high school dropout, some hope you can give them that maybe one day they'll end up giving a talk at a, a Ivy League college? Yeah, uh, Lieutenant is referencing. I have a speech coming up at Columbia uh, on March twenty eighth at six thirty. So if you're if you're new, well, this won't air by then. But um, but anyways, I that's a good question. I mean, you know, I, I would say that it's too easy just to say to not give up, right? I mean, that, everybody hears that, and people who the people who don't who, the people who need to hear that they've heard it already too many times, and it doesn't mean anything to them anymore. Uh, so I would say that in that situation, if you're in a situation like that, to understand that you are, the potential of you uh, is greater than what you are up to this point. So you have a whole lot of room to grow and you have a whole lot of uh, space to gain knowledge and wisdom uh, before your story is over. And it's up to you whether or not you want to end that prematurely. And so 
you know, for me, I, I knew right away that I was not meant to be just stuck, you know, in that neighborhood for the rest of my life or in jail or whatever. I knew that I, that I had something beyond that. I knew that I had bigger potential than that, but I had to have people who came to me in the right time in my life to, to help open that up to me. Like Bonnie, my ex-girlfriend who, you know, basically signed me up for college without me knowing about it. Had she not done that, I would have probably never taken that route. I probably never would have had the confidence to go to community college and take courses and take, take a photography course. And so who knows where I would be right now? I mean, I've done everything before photography. I was doing plumbing. I was a plumber's helper. I sold roofs. I worked at call centers. I worked at Whole Foods for four years. I mean, you know, I've cleaned swimming pools. I mean, I've done all kinds of stuff. You know, I've lived a thousand lives. And so I would just say, I know what that feels like to live paycheck to paycheck, to not know if you're going to be able to afford food this month. I know what that feels like. And you just have to understand that, you know, um, you, you always have more potential. You just cannot stop. You always have to push forward. A detective just texted me a question for you. Which detective? Detective Height right down there. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're an author and a photographer. He'd love to know how that feels, melding those two art forms together, and if the writing influences the perspective of the photography or the other way around. Well, I don't include a lot of my own writing, uh, because I don't feel I am a good writer. Um, so like with the Cuba book, right? I didn't put any of my personal words in there. The words that are in the Cuba, the Campesino Cuba book, one is written by a Cuban historian that lives there in Cuba. And then one is written by a Cuban poet that lives there in Cuba. I wanted them to write about being a Campesino. Um, now, as far as like Spina Americana, the book that I'm working on, uh, in addition to the one I'm working on homicide right now, I will be writing a little bit about Spina because it's my country and it was my journey going up to central United States um, and experiencing that part of the country that I had never experienced before, like driving up into Nebraska and North Dakota and South Dakota, going to reservations, photographing of prisons in North Dakota and that kind of thing, meeting a bunch of Native Americans. And so I'm going to write about that experience and who knows, the publisher may include it, he may not include it. As far as uh, the homicide book, I am I'm kind of debating right now whether or not I'm going to write the introduction for it. Um, I'm also very careful, like what I said about not putting myself up on the stage too much. I kind of want the work to be, in a way, my interview. And if you look at the photographs, that's what I'm trying to say. And so I'm afraid that if I write something, then people will automatically. Um, get a get an understanding of the images before they get an understanding of the images you know what i'm saying like i don't want to i don't want to tell them what to think before they think it you know i see what you're saying with that and i can i can appreciate what you're saying but if you write anything like you speak i would read your book yeah i mean like, i've enjoyed it thank you i appreciate it i mean i've been told that i mean i've been told that i should and I, and i may do for the homicide one but honestly the only real reason why I would do it for the homicide one and write an introduction or write some piece in there is to just kind of bring home how unaware the general public is about what law enforcement really deals with. Okay. Cause I'm a citizen of the general public who has been deep dived into this situation. And now I get to kind of really see everything that like patrol and everybody else has to see on a daily basis. And I think that if the general public really had an understanding of that, and I mean really had an understanding of that, they'd be a lot less inclined to um, 
criticize law enforcement uh, whenever uh, people fuck up. Because guess what? Cops are people and people fuck up. And there's always bad apples, whether there's doctors, physical therapists, janitors. You always got some asshole who kind of screws it up for everybody else, including photographers who go out there and do a terrible job representing what documentary photographers should be right? Cause they make it all about themselves or they only show one side of thing and then they get out of there and then they put out a book about it. And then that becomes the public discourse on that situation. And that's completely unfair to the, to the subject. It's an injustice. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that would be my biggest concern is making sure that I do justice. Well, I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Okay. Uh, Richard, uh, God, thank you. I, you're a beautiful human being inside and out. You're, Damn good looking man. Oh, thank you. I'm actually going to put my titty away because I know you're not going to sign it. <laughs> so I will sign your titty. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Seriously, thank you for sitting with us. I know you're super busy and I cannot wait to see the final cut of this project. I, I know, I know all the people that are involved Yeah. and I've seen the photos. It's they're powerful. They're impactful. They touch every aspect of humanity, the sadness, mm. the elation, the deep sorrow. There is nothing about homicide that is pretty from when it, the act is committed all the way up to when there was a guilty or not guilty years after that, it goes on. The ripple effect of homicide will never be forgotten, but for some people, yeah, thank you so much for uh, being you telling this story to, and telling your stories in a way that, I like how you put it that what you're doing now is not for yourself. It's for the many people that may pick up a book, pick up your project 50 years from now correct, and study it and actually become better people from being a part of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to not just bridge the divide between the general public and law enforcement, but I'm also, as far as the homicide subject itself, I'm just trying to get, I'm, you know, if it helps prevent a homicide, then you know what? That's awesome. Somebody looks at this book and says, man, this, there's a lot involved in this, um, you know, that hopefully it prevents uh, something in the future. And, and if that's the case, and I'll never know it, but if hopefully if that's the case, uh, then everything was worth it. So thank you for having me. And uh, I'll come back whenever you want a year or so now from now, and we can kind of see where everybody's at. And hopefully no, I'd, I'd, can join us. I'd love that. No, I, I, I have no doubt that you're going to be, I would love to have you back at a, at a different time, okay. whether it's about part two of your story or mm. what new project you're out there. Uh, sure. You're, oh, I got a doozy coming. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. Uh, you want to talk about that real quick? Well, uh, so I'm finishing up Spina this year, Spina Americana, where I'm photographing the central U.S., and uh, and then I'm finishing Homicide, hopefully this year. I'll be going to several prisons across the country, and interviewing and uh, doing portraits of uh, convicted murderers and then hopefully photographing their families in their states. So Montana is one of them. Illinois is another one. Um, so that'll be the third phase of this project. And I'm hopefully, hopefully wrapping up in it by the end of this year. And then these three books, uh, Spina Americana, um, American Homicide, and the third one is going to be like my trilogy. It's going to be my trilogy of American focused books. So American Homicide, Spina Americana, and the third one, which I'm tentatively titling Shadow Empire, is I'm going to go to the five uh, remaining territories of back when the United States was had aspirations to be a, an imperialist country, an imperialist nation, uh, like the Mariana Islands, Puerto Rico, um, the Virgin Islands, Guam, uh, and American Samoa. 
uh, where these individuals fly the American flag, they use American currency, but they do not have the same constitutional protections as you and I do, and they don't have voting power. So and essentially they're owned by Americans. They don't have independence as a people, but uh, they also contribute the vast majority of their populations to our military. So they send a lot of their young men over. Puerto Rico is a huge one. Uh, American Samoa, I think 80% of their uh, men join the US military, but yet they don't have voting power. Their, their, uh, their parents don't have voting power um, in, in our Congress. Uh, they have representation, but they don't have any real power. They can't vote for anything. So uh, to me, uh, they're Americans. Okay, they're my countrymen and my countrywomen, even though they live on a small, small island thousands of miles away in the Pacific. Okay, I consider them to be Americans. And so I want to go and photograph at each one of these locations uh, as them and photograph them in their home lives and their lives as Americans to show us, these mainland Americans, uh, that you have a whole bunch of countrymen and women out there that don't have constitutional protections, but yet they're forced to fly our flag. You're giving them a voice giving them a voice they're americans i see them as brethren brethren so i want to i want to highlight them as as not just individuals and as people but as americans ato family um this is a different type of episode and i've teased that and i think you're going to hear why but i think you're going to be you cannot listen to this man and be impressed with his his imagination his passion and his vision for our future Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Lieutenant. Thank you, Detective. Uh, Detective Height, thanks for setting in. And thank you, Kent. ATO listeners, Till next time. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs., hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through. sun and the moon I'll never give up on you Down when you're lonely I'll pull you up Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder Together we'll run up from the bottom Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister, I'll see this all the way on you 
Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mr. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I'll never give up on me.